You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning in humility and in brokenness, wanting and needing to hear from you. And so we open your word because we believe that every word of this book is inspired. And we believe this is how we hear your voice. It's through your word. So God, would you, by your spirit, speak to us, show us the glory and the majesty of your son. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. For most people, Christmas is a time of celebration and laughter. It's a time to gather with family and friends to tell stories, and to share memories. For most, Christmas is looked forward to all year long. But friends, as some of you know all too well, Christmas can also be a time of intense and heart-wrenching pain. For some of you, as you see families gathering and you hear their laughter, the reality of the absence of your loved one produces a piercing sorrow in your heart. Or perhaps for some of you, as you hear the laughter of gathered friends, the memories of broken relationships come flooding back to your mind. And no matter how hard you try to move on, each year seems to get more and more difficult. This is what I love about the true story of Christmas revealed to us in God's Word. Because it's the story of love displayed through sacrifice and loss, it has the unique ability to be Two things at the very same time. It can both deepen the joy of those who are already filled with joy. And it can also break into the profound hurt of a wounded heart and offer real hope. You see, brothers and sisters, this is how everything we've talked about during our Advent series comes together. What stands behind God's promise of peace and hope and joy? What motivates all of God's promises to us in Christ? 
It's His love. In fact, Scripture reveals that love is bound up in the very nature of God. God is love. And how is God's love supremely displayed? In the sending of His one and only Son, Jesus. In fact, listen to theologian George Ladd. He writes, The most ignominious and cruel form of human execution became the place where God supremely displayed His love. As we contemplate the miraculous birth of Jesus, we can't help but think about His substitutionary death. This is the undeniable evidence of God's love for sinners like you and me. And I love how this divine love is captured so beautifully in a hymn called, Here is Love. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. My aim this morning is twofold. First, I want any person here who is not a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear of God's love this morning. I pray that as you behold his love for you, you will turn to him in faith. Second, if you're a believer... I want to remind you that the cradle casts a long shadow forward to the cross. Spurgeon said those babies' feet unable to walk would one day muster the strength to walk up a dusty hill and be nailed to a cross. The baby Christ's little head was formed so that one day men might thrust a crown of thorns on it. His tender infant body, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. This was the eternal plan of God. This would be the supreme display of God's love. And it's laid out before us in great clarity in our text this morning. In John 3, 16 through 18, I want to offer you answers to three questions. First, what did God do for sinners? Second, why did he do it? And third, and finally, what does it have to do with each of us? Or we might say, how does it affect each of us? Let's look at our text again. John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's start by answering our first question. What did God do for sinners? 
As most of you know, John 3.16 is, is the most famous and perhaps the most loved verse in all of Scripture. In fact, most of you have seen this reference written on poster board and you've seen it waved around at sporting events or you've, you've seen it written on the wristband or the shoe of your favorite athlete. For many of you, this was the very first Bible verse you ever heard and committed to memory. So why is this verse so important? Well, it begins with an important word, but it's, it's an easy word to overlook. It's the word for. And it shows us that what we're about to read connects to what has come before. So look back with me at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verses 14 and 15 are recorded in the context of a conversation between Jesus and a religious leader named Nicodemus. Nicodemus asked Jesus what it would take to enter the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again. If you're familiar with the account, Nicodemus is very confused by what Jesus says. And as Jesus explains to him the nature of saving faith, Jesus points Nicodemus to the gospel by means of an Old Testament example, a story recorded in Numbers chapter 21. The challenge to Nicodemus is to realize his desperate condition. That he was in just as great a need as were the Israelites when they were bitten by snakes and were facing certain death. You see, the Israelites could only find life by obeying God and looking to the bronze serpent for life. And likewise, Nicodemus would only find life by looking to Christ. Just as the serpent was lifted up, so too would Jesus be lifted up. In fact, the Gospel of John later records that Jesus will be beaten, and then nailed to a cross, and that cross would then be, what? Lifted up. And Jesus would hang on it as the perfect lamb, a sinless substitute for sinners. Now, all of this begs the question, why? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, need to be lifted up? Why was his death necessary? Well, John 3.16 is the answer. The death of Jesus was necessary because God loves sinners. The death of Jesus Christ, the horrible crucifixion of God's only Son, is a direct result of God's love for sinners. Sinners like you and me. Again, we, we lean on Charles Spurgeon who said, Christ was sent into the world by his Father as the consequence of the Father's affection for his people. Let me say this again. God's love is chiefly and supremely displayed through the death of Jesus Christ. You'll notice the third word in verse 16 is the word so. Now we can understand that a couple of different ways, and you've probably heard it taught both of these ways. It, it could mean that God really 
really loves us. Right? He loves us so much. Like when you ask a child how big something is and they stretch out their arms and they say it was so big. It's possible that this word so primarily reveals the intensity of God's love. In, in fact, it undoubtedly does to some degree. But more so, friends, this refers to the demonstration of God's love. Uh, you could say it like this. It's how the Christian Standard Bible, if you have that in front of you, it's how the CSB translates verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. Now, this understanding in no way diminishes the intensity of God's love for us, but it shows us that his love was demonstrated in a real and tangible way. Listen, God didn't just say to sinners, I love you. He actually did something to demonstrate his love. He proved his love by acting on it. So I, I want you to try something when you go home today or, or sometime over the next few days. Ask the people in your life, if you're brave enough to do this, ask them why they believe you love them. See if your experience is like mine. The answers you'll get will likely be in the form of love-motivated actions. No one will simply say, because you say so. Without fail, each person you ask will answer with something you've done. You see, it's always the demonstration of your love that proves your love. The people in your life know that you love them because of what you do. Friends, we can be confident that God loves us, not simply because we hear the words, I love you, but because we see the demonstration of his love, we see the sacrifice of something precious. Something that is far more precious than any mere possession. God demonstrated his love by giving his only son. Notice the deliberate choice of words God gave. God gave his only son. In the next verse, verse 17, we read that God sent his son. While both are true, the first one reminds us of God's sacrifice. He offered something that was dear to him, something that he cared about. Right? He's not like the older brother who sometime in the next few days will gift wrap the toys that he no longer plays with and gives them as a Christmas present to his siblings. No, God's love is displayed in an astonishing gift. And make no mistake, it is a gift. God does not require us to pay anything to purchase it, and he requires nothing from us to earn it. I have to believe Many of you here this morning, as you think about different relationships in your life, your mind is flooded with thoughts of, of pain and disappointment. You have heard the words, I love you, 
more times than you can count, but you've rarely experienced a demonstration of true love. Friend, if that's you, I imagine there's an aching in your heart, a longing to experience sincere and sacrificial love. I would plead with you this morning to look to Jesus. The beauty of the gospel, which is the display of God's love for you in Christ, is not simply an announcement of love, but it is a radical demonstration of love. Consider the words of Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates His love not because we deserve it, but because He is infinitely loving. Unlike too many human relationships where love is contingent upon doing the right things or measuring up to someone's standard, God's love is perfect love. And His offering of Jesus is a gift. Salvation is free. But it's not cheap. This gift costs us nothing, but it costs the Son of God His life. God willingly gave His Son for the rescue of sinners like you and me. So what did God do for sinners? He loved us in this way. He gave His Son. Next, I want to answer the question, why did He do this? And I've already alluded to it, but look at verse 17. There's more to the answer. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God's purpose in sending His Son was not to condemn the world. You see, the Jews were looking for a religious leader, a a king to condemn the Romans and liberate them from oppression. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't need to come to earth to condemn mankind because we were condemned already, according to verse 18. Friends, God knew that in our condemnation and guilt, we needed a Savior. And that's precisely what Christmas is all about. God providing exactly what we as sinners need. Jesus came on a rescue mission. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, every sinner, all of us, we all need something that we cannot supply for ourselves. 
no amount of human ingenuity or hard work would ever bring salvation or manufacture peace between a sinful man and a holy God. Think about this. We, we love to make a big deal about mankind's accomplishments, don't we? We hear comments like this. Look how far we've come. Look what we can do. But friends, are we any closer? Are we any closer to solving our greatest problem? Will there ever be breaking news scrolling across the bottom of your TV screen announcing that scientists have discovered the cure for sin? No. No, our greatest problem demands a divine solution. We need a Savior. And the Savior must have power over sin and death. You and I can no more save ourselves than a baby could birth himself. We were drowning in a sea of sin and we needed someone to come to our rescue. Someone has to throw us the life preserver and pull us to safety. Friends, this is why God sent his son into the world. No mere man could ever save us from death. God had to send someone unique into the world, one who was both God and man. There was no other way. Look back at verse 16. Jesus came so that you would not perish, but have eternal life. Here we find out what we needed to be saved from. In this context, to perish is used in conjunction with eternal life and refers to eternal perishing. It's the same idea Jesus employed in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Every man and woman who rejects Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. Friends, hell is a real place. Scripture tells us it's a lake of fire which burns forever. It's a place of eternal conscious torment. It's a place where the punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God is infinitely experienced by sinners. And so here is the contrast we find. We can place our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sin and enjoy eternal life in our Father's house. Or, or we can reject the truth and eternally suffer in hell as the just penalty for our sin. So if you're here today and in some way investigating the Christian faith or you're a family member or a friend who is, who is here visiting, my, my goal is not to scare you into religion, my goal is to lovingly but urgently warn you of the judgment 
that your sin deserves and to share with you that eternal death and eternal life are the only two possibilities for your future. Verse 17 ends with two very important words. Through him. It's only through Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. There's a song I love that puts it perfectly. Speaking of Christ, it declares quite simply, He alone can rescue. He alone can save. Brothers and sisters, we, we can't forget that we are here this morning solely and entirely because of Jesus. Only Jesus defeated death. Only Jesus conquered the grave. So only Jesus can make a promise to give life after death. His miraculous birth, his sinless life, and glorious resurrection provide all that is necessary for sinful man to be reconciled, to find peace with a holy God. Jesus is the only way. But he bids to you. He says to you, come to me, all who are weak, who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The picture we have of Jesus in the scriptures is not someone who stiff arms those who come to him, who, who don't have everything put together. It's not a Savior who says, get everything in order, pull yourself together, and then maybe I'll receive you. No, he runs like the father to the prodigal. And he receives only, he receives only those who are broken and weary. So we've now seen what God did. He loved us by giving his son. We've seen why he did it. So that we could be saved from eternal condemnation. Finally, I want to answer a third question. How does this affect you and me? Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The difference between eternal death, condemnation, and eternal life, pardon, is believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus Christ means that you must acknowledge the claims of Jesus, that he is God. He is who he says he is then yield your allegiance to him as Lord and master of your life. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Pray that simple prayer we, we find modeled in Scripture. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You must place your trust in him. 
as the only hope for salvation from sin and death. Notice your Bible says that whoever does this, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Condemned means to judge a person to be guilty and liable for punishment. But in Christ, those who believe are no longer guilty because your sin has been removed by the blood of Christ and nothing can be held against you. This is, this is glorious. Friends, Jesus did for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. You see, we could stand before God and proclaim our innocence until we're blue in the face, but it wouldn't matter. Why? Because we're not innocent. We're not innocent. Each of us has sinned, for all have sinned, the Bible says. Each one of us stands already marked for death. But when we place our faith in Jesus alone to save us, our sin and guilt are washed away and we are declared innocent. Clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why it's called good news. It is only through Christ and in Christ that our condemnation is removed. And brothers and sisters, this can never be reversed. Those who are in Christ can never be condemned. If God has declared you innocent, then the matter is settled. This is why we find what we do in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What's so Glorious about Romans chapter 8, it begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation. All because of Christ. Jesus, the one who paid our penalty when he was crucified on the cross and buried, he did not stay dead. The grave could not hold him. This is what we celebrate every week when we gather together. I want you to note that in John 3, verse 18, the phrase is not condemned. It's in the present tense. This is so significant because it means that our condemnation has already been removed. It's not just anticipating a final day when God removes our guilt and does not cast us into eternal punishment, but it says right now, right here, you are in Christ and you are free from condemnation. So, so pause for a moment and think through this. How should this reality impact our daily lives. 
What difference does it make in our fight against sin and discouragement? Well, consider this, brothers and sisters. Are are you daily embracing the reality of Christ's finished and all-sufficient work? Listen to D.A. Carson somewhat confrontationally, but lovingly. This is what he writes to believers. How dare, how dare you approach the mercy seat of God on the basis of what kind of day you've had? As if that were the basis for our entrance into the presence of the sovereign and holy God. No wonder we cannot beat the devil. This is works theology. It has nothing to do with grace and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Nothing. Do you not understand that we overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of Christ? Nothing more, nothing less. This is how we win. It is the only way we win. This is the only ground of our acceptance before God. Redeemer Faith family, I I beg you, stay close to the cross. Live in its shadow. You must not forget that in Christ you are fully and forever accepted by God. Now, sadly, verse 18 has a second half. Look at it with me. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's a, that's a chilling statement, isn't it? Sin has consequences. We inherently understand this. When we hear the gruesome account of a murder, what's our first thought? Well, whoever did this needs to pay. We demand justice. That's our natural response when we see what we might call big, flagrant sins or when someone sins against us. But we we tend to forget that all sin, even our sin, what Jerry Bridges calls our acceptable sins, Regardless of the size, sin, all sin, bears a tremendous penalty, and the penalty is death. Now, words like condemnation and judgment could make you doubt that God is actually good and that he's loving. But these verses make it clear. Condemnation is a result of a sinner's refusal to accept God's gift. And if that's you, you will face the consequences of your sin, not because God's gift of Jesus was insufficient, but because you refused to turn from your sin and trust in Him. Friend, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject Jesus Christ, you have no one to blame but yourself. The reason sinners are condemned to hell is not because of something faulty in God's gift of Jesus. He is perfect. He is sufficient. 
He alone can meet the greatest need of every sinner. If you reject God's gift of Christ, it tragically reveals the condition of your heart. It reveals that you're blinded by sin. The fault lies in the sinner, not the Savior. The message of the Bible is the simple message of sacrificial love. There is no greater love than God's love, seen so clearly in the act of sending His own Son that first Christmas. Jesus Christ came into this world in love to save those who hated Him. This is the gospel. And this is good news. I want to conclude this morning with an appeal. Some time ago, I read the following statement by Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson, and I've I've returned to it hundreds of times, and I've shared it with you before. But I think it's the perfect way to end this morning as we consider this wonderful text, as we, as we think deeply about God's love for sinners like all of us. This is what Ferguson writes. When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We would almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. We cannot measure such love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. Christ died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross we could never do for ourselves. But listen to how Ferguson concludes. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that He loves us. He persuades us that He loves us. If you're here this morning and you have never embraced God's love for you in Jesus Christ, I hope, I hope and I pray that even in this moment, the Holy Spirit is persuading you persuading you of God's love for you in Christ. Friend, if that's you, repent. Repent and believe in Jesus this morning. To my Christian brothers and sisters, if you have already embraced the gospel, I want you to be reminded this morning to be persuaded again that in, midst, in the midst of your constant failure, in the midst of your ongoing battles with sin that nobody knows about and you've never opened up to anybody about, as God looks down and he sees you for who you really are, 
he sees the righteousness of Christ. And I want you to be reminded this morning, to be persuaded again that he loves you. He loves you because of Jesus. And that love will never fail. It will never falter. It will never be revoked because it was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray together.